Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're continuing our study in uh, Acts chapter 9, and you'll remember uh, that in the first paragraph of this chapter, we, we read the account of Paul's conversion, his his so-called Damascus Road experience, when, when Jesus met him on the way, he was actually on his way to arrest followers of Christ, to, to arrest any who belonged to the way, to bring them back to Jerusalem bound, and yet Jesus met him on the way and called him to repentance and faith. Then in the, the next paragraph, verses 10 through 19, we, we read of his commissioning, you remember that on the road, Jesus had said, Go into the city and you will be told what you are to do. And that's exactly what we see happen in verses 10 through 19. Jesus sends a man named Ananias to Paul. He says to him, Go into this house on this street and find this man where he is praying. And you are to say to him that you are God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Ananias goes, he lays hands on him, he prays for him, and Saul regains his sight, which had been taken by the encounter with Jesus on the road, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is set apart for the work that Jesus had called him to do. And now, in these verses before us this morning, we see him begin that work. And in verses 19 through 25, we, we read the account of Paul's first three years as a disciple and apostle of Jesus Christ. And before we read this word together, let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon the ministry of his word here this morning. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you now. Humbly asking that as we give our attention to your word, that you would remember your promise, Father, and that it would not return to you void. May the same spirit who inspired Luke to write these words, may he now be at work here in and through that word among us, Father. May we receive it with faith and love, and, and may we uh, let it dwell richly in our hearts. May we be transformed by it all to the praise of your Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, beginning in the middle of verse 19. This is the very word of God. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is the reading of God's Word. Children, you can come forward to meet Pastor Sam at the front. All right, y'all. If you can kind of look over this way, that, that would be good this morning. Um, uh, all right, so I need to work on my handwriting. Uh, you can see it's not so good right now. Yeah, 
Uh, that's something I need to work on. And so I'm going to copy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this beautiful handwriting back behind me, and I'm going to see if I can change my chicken scratch writing into something a little bit nicer. All right, here we go. You ready? All right, is that, how's that? <laughs> Still? All right. All right, so I'm going to try to make it look like that, right? Okay, here we go. Let's do it one more time. Yeah? What do you think? What? Come on. You, I didn't change for the better? No? Not really? Okay. Okay, alright, so so what do you think is wrong? Like, what's going on here? I, I mean, may, maybe I should use a different pen. Would that fix things? Maybe you see better what I'm working on, Bren. Maybe if I made the J a little taller, you think that would do it? Or, have you, have you noticed what I haven't done? Have, have you noticed what I haven't done? I haven't been looking at the original. Do you think that maybe spending some time looking at that would actually help me change? Yes. Yeah. Well, now, my handwriting is, is never going to be as good as what's on the board. Somebody else did that, and that's just not realistic for me. <laughs> but when you spend less time looking at your own little mess that you make, and you spend more time looking at the original, you're probably going to make some progress. Well, something similar happens in our lives when it comes to change. Like, my life needs to be changed. It needs to be transformed in so many ways because my life does not look like Jesus' life. I'm not yet as holy or patient or gentle as God means for us to be. And you can just ask my kids and they'll tell you that. But when it comes to change, if all I ever do is look at myself, all I'm ever going to see is that mess that I've made. But if I look away from myself and I look at Jesus, then, then there's real hope in him. Because not only does he promise us that he has already paid for all of our sin, all of our mess, but in him is actually real power for change, real change. Seeing Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior of sinners, it gives us hope because in Him we find His grace, not only for all the ways that we fail, but His grace also changes us to make us look more like Him. And, and so if there is some area in your life where you want to see change, you really need to focus on Jesus first, but not on the area that you want to see change. And because he is glad to change us by his grace, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? Yes. Thanks. Welcome to that. If you've not already done so, open your Bibles to that text, to Acts chapter 9. As I said previously, these verses give us a, a glimpse, a, an overview of the first three years of Paul's ministry. 
ministry as a as a disciple and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, now, admittedly, that's not immediately obvious in the text. You can you can read these verses and think that they they cover only a, a very brief time, a few weeks, or maybe a, a few months. But it's actually in his letter to the Galatians that we learn that three years passed between his conversion uh, and his first trip to Jerusalem, which we see in verse 26, right after the text that we read. And so we know that, that these verses describe for us a, a three-year period. But knowing that, being able to sort of cross-reference uh, Luke's account here in Acts with, with Paul's account in, in Galatians, while it is helpful to, to give us a, a sense of the time and some of the other details, it also creates a few challenges. It creates a few challenges because there are some difficulties in reconciling uh, Luke's account here in Acts with Paul's account in Galatians. And, and so while it's not really the main point of this text, I feel like I had to address it. So I want to kind of get it out of the way up front. I want to, I want to talk about the relationship between uh, this account here in Acts, Luke's account, and then the account that Paul gives us in one of his earliest letters, his letter to the Galatians. And as I said, there are some difficulties. There's some difficulties figuring out exactly how the two accounts fit together. There's some, some difficulties figuring out exactly uh, what happened during these three years. Because here Luke says that, that, that Paul immediately begins to preach in the synagogues at Damascus. But, but Paul tells us that he also went away into Arabia, the, the wilderness around Damascus. And then he, he spent some time there in, in contemplation. He spent some time there in ministry. And so we have a challenge of figuring out, well, exactly what happened. And I want to suggest to you that, that how you approach those difficulties reveals first something about your own heart. And then secondly, it, it reveals something about our understanding of Scripture as well. But first, what does it reveal about us? I want to suggest to you that the way that we approach these difficulties really reveals uh, our posture towards Scripture. Because if you are suspicious of Scripture, if you're looking for a way to get out from under uh, the yoke of, of Scripture, if you're working for a way to, to discount its authority, then you will tend to look for ways to say, well, see, this is just a, a human document by, written by different authors with, with contradictory information. Luke says one thing, Paul says something else. They can't both be right. And so therefore, this is merely a, a human document. And if that's what you are looking to discover, you can use... Uh, things like this, the, 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 the difficulties in reconciling the account in Acts with the account in Galatians, you can use that as an excuse to do what you want. But of course, if you come to the Scriptures as the Word of God, if you believe that the, the Scriptures were, were given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you believe that because they are God's Word, they are inerrant and they always speak the truth, then you will approach those difficulties very differently. You still may not be certain how to reconcile the two stories. You may not be able to come up with an exact timeline of these three years, because neither author gives us enough details to do that. But you will assume that there is a way to reconcile them, and you will look for those solutions. 
And so again, I want to suggest to you that, that how you approach these difficulties actually reveals more about you than it does about the text. It, it reveals more about your heart posture towards the text. Are you looking for an excuse to get out from under the authority of God's word? Or are you approaching the word as the inerrant word of God? Because there are difficulties, but there are also possible solutions. I'm not going to go through all the, the possible solutions. If you want to get together and talk about how we might reconcile these texts, I'd be happy to do that. A, a good commentary will, will do it for you as, as well. Scott's commentary or um, Johnson's commentary. Any of these commentaries on Acts can, can help you reconcile some of these uh, difficulties. But, but I want to suggest to you the fact that we have to do that sort of reconciling, not only does it reveal something about our hearts, but it also reveals something about the nature of Scripture that is important for us to understand. Because what we need to understand is that while, yes, the Scriptures are in there. I want you to hear me say that. I want everybody to quote me as saying, oh, you need to not have an answer to the No. The Scriptures are in there. They are the inspired Word of God, written under the, the influence of the Holy Spirit, men carried along by the Spirit as they, as they reveal the very words of God. And because they are the very words of God, they, they tell the truth. And everything that they assert, there is truth. It is true. So the Word is inerrant, but we have to understand that inerrancy is not mechanical. It, it's organic. It's organic because that's the way human language works. Human language is not like computer programming. In computer programming, words have very defined meanings, and they, they lead to very specific outcomes. That's not the way that we use language when we talk to one another. And the scriptures are written in human language. And so therefore, there is a, there's an organic nature to them. And what that means is that, that, that words have a range of meaning, and the details are included, are included because of the author's intent. What is the author trying to communicate? What is he, he getting at? You can imagine a, a situation that if your boss asks you what happened at work today, he may be looking for a very specific answer. If your wife asks you what happened at work today, she's looking for a very different story. You're going to probably include different details in those answers. You may, you may recount a conversation at the water cooler with your wife that, that had significance because it was a good friend that you were catching up with. You're probably not going to tell your boss about that. Because they, they're asking for different information. The, the point of the story is different. That's exactly what's going on with Luke's account and, and Paul's account. Luke has a very specific purpose. What is he trying to communicate? He's trying to show us that Paul's conversion was real. And we see that his conversion was real because it has an effect. It, it bears fruit in his life. There is an immediate change. There is a progressive change. And there is a costly change in the life of this man. And we're going to come back to those points in just a moment. But, but Paul's point in his letter to the Galatians is different. Paul isn't trying to, to convince uh, the uh, Galatians that he was, was truly converted. He's trying to convince them that he was called to be an apostle, that his authority is, is rooted in his call by Jesus himself. And so therefore, he, he emphasizes the fact that he did not learn this gospel from any man, but rather it was revealed to him by Jesus himself. And so the, the point of the story is different. They're, they're, they're making different points, and therefore, they give us different details. And the only thing I want you really to, to grasp about this is that 
is not only the organic nature of inerrancy, but how our approach to the, the, the difficulties that necessarily are rooted in that organic nature, our approach to those difficulties reveals more about us than about if you are looking for a way to get out from under the authority of Scripture, you will latch on to things like this and you'll say, see, there's errors. But if you recognize that this is the Word of God, you will see that, no, these stories can be woven together in a beautiful world that reveals with something about God and something about His Christ and something about what it means to be His that's what Luke is doing. That's what Paul is doing. But since we're in Luke's text, we want to look at Luke's purpose this morning. So what is it that Luke is doing? Well, as I, as I said, Luke tells us this story because he wants us to see the radical change that comes about in Paul's life. And he, and he shows us three aspects of that change. First, he shows us that it is a, an immediate change. Second, he shows us that it is a progressive change. And thirdly, he shows us that it is a costly change. So let's, let's begin with the fact that it is an immediate change. We, we see this beginning in verse 20. Notice, we're told that, that Paul was in Damascus for some days, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. So immediately, Paul begins to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. This was, to say the least, a surprise to the people in Damascus. Notice what they say in verse 21. He says, all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Is this not the man who is coming here to arrest followers of the way and to take them bound before the high priest? And now he stands in our synagogues and he proclaims Jesus as the Son of God. This is, a, this is a complete about face. He has is, he is turned 180 degrees. This is a complete change, an immediate change in his life. We have to ask ourselves, what is it that, that brought about this change? Well, we, we see it there in the, the content of his own speech. Jesus, Paul, who previously was, was zealous to make a name for himself, as a good Jew, as one faithful for the traditions, as, as, as one who was going to be zealous for the ways of his fathers. He was out to make a name for himself as a good Jew. He is now throwing all of that away to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. The one who was out to assert himself has now become the humble servant of another. His ambition has completely changed. What he wants out of life, how he, how he thinks of the good life, how he thinks of success. All of that has, has been radically transformed. Why? Because he has come to see that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, that's not a term that's often used in the book of Acts. That actually is just another clue that tells us that this is actually a true account because Paul himself tells us that it was coming to see Jesus as the Son of God that transformed his life. This was, this was the first thing. This was the sort of his, his first uh, doctrinal building block. He saw Jesus as the resurrected Lord. So what does it mean to, to say that he is the, the Son? 
Or as he says it in Galatians, what does it mean to have the Son revealed to him? Or, or as he says it in Romans, what does it mean for him to, to see Jesus as now the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead? Well, in the Old Testament, that language of, of sonship is used in a number of ways. It's used sometimes to refer to the whole nation of Israel. The people of Israel, the children of God, and collectively they are the Son of God. They are, they are God's adopted child. But sometimes the language is, is narrowed to refer just to the king of Israel, as the, as the representative of the whole nation. The king is the son. But most significantly in the Old Testament, this language of the son of God is used to refer not to the king generally, but to the king. David's greater son, the, the promised savior. This is what we see in a text like Psalm 2, for example. Remember Psalm 2, the, the nations are raging, the nations are, are shaking their fist in God's face. They're saying, we will not be ruled by you. We're going to throw off your yoke. And God says in, in absolute calmness, with, without any sense of anxiety about their threats, God says, no, my anointed will rule. My son will sit on the throne. That's, that's the picture of the son. We see the son of God is God's appointed king. The one who will bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. He is the Messiah. That's why later in this text we, we see that, that Paul is proving that Jesus is the, the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the son who comes as the promised Savior. <coughs> but there's something even grander than that going on. The Old Testament promised that the Son of God would, would come one day. But now Paul, having encountered the, the risen and glorified Christ on the road, he is now beginning to realize that the Son is not just a title, but that is who Jesus actually is. He's not the Son in the way that, that the children of Israel are sons. He's not the Son in the way that any other king is son. But that he is the only begotten Son. He is the unique Son. He is God himself come in human flesh. Now at this point, Paul uh, most likely does not have a, a fully worked out doctrine of the, the Trinity. His mind is still reeling. He, he knows that, that Yahweh is one. He's been saying it since he was a little boy. Here, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. And yet now he knows that Jesus is the Son of God and is God. It's the, it's the mystery of what John proclaims in his, his prologue. The Word was with God and the Word is God. And it has blown Paul's mind. And, and, and he is realizing that, that this there's a mystery here that, that he is only beginning to understand. But he realizes enough to see this. It changes everything. If Jesus Christ, the man crucified in Jerusalem, now risen, now reigning at the right hand of the Father, the man who encountered Saul on the road to Damascus, if he is the Son of God, and he is proven to be by his resurrection from the dead, it changes everything. If Jesus is the Son, if he is the, the Son of God come in the flesh, then we must, we must bow to him as Lord. And we must devote ourselves to him as humble 
circuit. Sometimes you, you learn something about somebody, and it doesn't really change your life all that much. You, you learn they were born here, you learn that they worked there. It's interesting, but it doesn't change much. Not so with learning that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God changes everything. It did for Paul, and it must for us. Jesus is the Son of God, then we must, of absolute necessity, we must immediately stop pursuing our own ambitions. We must immediately stop pursuing our own ends. We must immediately stop seeking to establish our life according to our terms. We must immediately stop doing what's right in our own eyes. And we must bow to Him as Lord and to begin honoring Him. With our lives. Think of what Paul says later in his letter to the Colossians. He says, if you have received Jesus the Lord, if you, if you have come to see him for who he is, if you've come to know that he is God in human flesh, the, the promised Savior who gave himself as a ransom for his people, if you come to see Jesus for who he is, you must now walk in him. You must walk in him. Must walk according to his lordship. For, for Paul, that meant beginning to, to preach the gospel because that was his calling. He was called to be an apostle, specifically an apostle to the, the Gentiles. And so his life was, was transformed immediately. He who used to, to persecute the Jews now begins to proclaim Jesus as the Christ. We'd be glad to hear me say we're not all called to be preachers. That's not, what, that's not what everybody is called to do. But we are all called to be servants. We are all called to devote our lives to Him. And, and whatever your giftings, whatever your opportunities, whatever uh, God has prepared for you to do, you must give yourself to that without reservation and without qualification. You are a servant of the King, the risen King. The king who is God himself in human flesh. And he has called you into his service. And therefore you must now seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He is Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. And therefore your ambition cannot be separated from his Lordship. You can no longer run after all these things that the, the Gentiles seek. You can no longer seek to, to establish your life in the abundance of possessions or in the experience of, of pleasures or in the, of the gain of, of prestige. These things can no longer be your life because Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord, the Christ, the Savior of sinners. And because He is, we must now seek first His kingdom. Do you see it? See, it is Jesus that changes everything. It is who he is that changes everything. And therefore, as Santa was saying to the kids, if, if you would be changed, if your life would be transformed, it is not going to happen by, by looking inward or by looking to technique or by looking to, to self-discipline. You are transformed by setting your eyes on him, by seeing him for who he is, seeing that he is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the only hope of glory. 
So this is where we must begin. This is, this is where conversion begins. Conversion begins with an immediate change rooted in the revelation of Jesus as the Son. When you see him for who he is, it changes everything. But of course, when we see him, we never fully comprehend him. And so while the change begins immediately with seeing Jesus for who he is, that change is also a progressive change. That's the second thing that we have to see. And again, we, we see it in Paul. Look again at, at verse 22. We're told that Saul increased all the more and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So here is Saul, this, this man immediately transformed by the revelation of Jesus as the Son of God. And now we're told that he continues to increase. And notice, he, he goes from proclaiming to proving. He, he confounds the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Son of God. He grew. He grew in his knowledge of who God is. He, he grew in his understanding of, of who Jesus is. This is, this is probably why he, he goes off into Damascus, as he tells us in, in Galatians. He has to ponder these things. He begins to, he begins to, to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. And, and what happens? He gets some resistance. We'll talk about that in a minute. He gets some, some resistance from the, the people. They, they aren't convinced. If you've ever taught a class, whether it was little kids in Sunday school or whether it's college students in a, in a classroom, you know what it is to engage with your students and to have them push back and for you to be challenged to refine your thinking. Well, this is what's happening to Paul. He's, he's proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. He knows this because he's encountered him on the road. But then he, he, he deals with the Jews in the synagogues. And he has to go. He has to search the scriptures. And he goes off into the wilderness to do it. And he comes back and he, he proclaims again. And who knows how many times that, that cycle repeats itself in these three years. But the Saul who was immediately changed when he came to know Jesus as the Son of God. Nevertheless goes on to grow in that knowledge. And therefore, continue to increase in strength through his spirit-filled study of the word and his spirit-empowered conversations with, with, no doubt, disciples in Damascus, but also with his opponents. And again, I want to suggest to you that it ought to be exactly the same for us. When we come to know Jesus as the Son of God, it changes everything. But it's only the beginning. It is only the beginning for one who would be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because yes, the, the Christian life is rooted in Jesus' lordship. And when we come to, to see him, our lives are transformed. But we only know the slightest inkling of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. We only know the slightest inkling of what it means for him to, to be the Christ. And we need to grow. We need to study and humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit. We need to, to search the scriptures. We need to let them dwell in our hearts richly. We need to meditate upon them. We need to, to talk about them in our small groups and in our, uh, just the course of our normal lives. And we need to worship. Where we are regularly brought into the presence of the King. Where we can behold His glory in the words that we read. In the songs that we sing. In the prayers that we offer. In all the ways that God has supplied, we need to continue to grow in our knowledge of Jesus as the Son of God. 
so that we might be more and more transformed into the image of His glory. Because as we increase, we increase in wisdom. We increase in the ability to, to work these things out in our daily lives. Have you ever, have you ever encountered a neighbor who, who you just didn't know what it would look like to love them? You know you're supposed to love them. That's pretty clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. But sometimes it's not exactly clear what loving your neighbor looks like. What exactly should you do? What exactly should you say as we, as we meditate upon Jesus Christ, as we set our eyes on Him, as we worship together, as we speak together, as we walk together, we become more and more enabled to live this life that we have been called to, to do the good works that have been prepared for us. And not only do we become wiser in our walk, but we are also strengthened to endure in that walk. And we will need to endure. We will need to endure because it will be hard. It will be long. It will be difficult. And that's actually the third and final thing we see here in this text. Saul's conversion is immediate. It is progressive. He, he grows. And it is we actually see this in the, the next paragraph, verses 23 through 25. Notice what we're told as, as Paul is in Damascus, as he's preaching Jesus as the Son of God and as the, the Christ, many days pass. And as those days pass, the, the Jews who have been confounded get more and more agitated. We've seen this story before. We saw Jesus. And then we've seen it with his apostles in Jerusalem. And now we, we see it with Paul. What's annoyance grows into agitation, grows into aggression. So the Jews begin to plot how they might kill him. But their plot becomes known to Saul. While they were watching the gates, he's let out in a basket through the wall. Now there's a couple of things to, to note here. You know, just in, in passing, note the fact that, that Paul takes advantage of the opportunity to escape. Sometimes, uh, God requires us to stand in the midst of the fire and not move. But sometimes it's permissible to escape. If he opens the door, take it. You know, we, it there's no virtue in enduring persecution unnecessarily. Paul takes the opportunity to escape. He, he takes the opportunity to, to move on, to, to preach the gospel another day. It is okay to, to flee from persecution when God opens the door. As long as we're not compromising the gospel, as long as we're not denying who Jesus is or who we are as his disciples, it's, it's okay to escape. But the, but the main point we need to see here is that persecution will come. It will inevitably come to those who seek to honor Jesus as Lord. It will inevitably come to those who confess him as the Son of God. Maybe it will come in your family. Maybe there are, are family members, loved ones, who, who resent the fact that you called Jesus Lord, that you would dare to, to live for Him, that your allegiance to Him would even outrank your allegiance to them. Maybe you've encountered that in your, your family. Maybe you've encountered it at work. A boss who, who resents the fact that you honor Jesus more than Him. Maybe it's just the culture at large. We, we live in a culture that more and more and more hate 
hates the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It hates those who, who honor him. It's not just that they, they find it irrelevant. They find it repugnant. They think that this gospel is bigoted. They think that it is narrow. They think that it is hateful. And they hate those who follow the Lord. But whatever the form, the costs will mount. Persecution will come. The road will be hard for those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And so we must be prepared to endure. And how do we endure? By setting our eyes on Jesus. By remembering the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So that our good might be eternally secured. You see, we are able to endure when we see Jesus first because he is our hope of glory. Think about what Paul says in, in his second letter to the, the Corinthians. He says that the, 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 the slight and momentary afflictions that we face here and now are not worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. Yes, we may suffer here and now, but in glory... In, in the age to come, we will have inheritance that is beyond all comparing. We will have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And therefore, we can endure. But it's not just that we're enduring until that day. Because there's also the, 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 the reality that in the present, He is our peace. Here and now... There is a peace for those who, who honor him, a peace that surpasses understanding, a peace that is not rooted in our circumstances because we know that even here and now, he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Think of what Peter says. He says, who can harm you if you honor Jesus as Lord? They may make you suffer, but they cannot harm you. For your good is in his it is seeing Jesus Christ as the Lord that allows us to, to bear the cost of following Him. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that the conversion is rooted in seeing Jesus with new eyes. The, the radical transformation that takes place takes place because we see Jesus. As the eternal Son of God and the Savior of sinners. It is, it is that new vision of who Jesus is that, that produces this immediate change. That allows it to be a progressive change. And allows us to endure even when it is a costly change. This is what we see in Saul. And it must be true of us as well. So let me ask you, where are you on this journey? Where are you this morning? Some here are, are coming to see Jesus as the Son of God for the first time. Maybe it's the covenant child who, who's grown up in the church, who, who knows that this is their parents' faith, but is for the first time beginning to realize that, that hey, wait a second, these aren't just stories. These, these aren't just fables that, that teach us an interesting lesson about life. This is the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. And that changes everything. Maybe it's a long-time member who's just been in the church all his life because that's what he does. But now, through, through God's providence and through the working of the Holy Spirit, his eyes are being opened to the reality of who Jesus is. 
Maybe it's someone who's never really been in church before at all. But again, the Spirit is drawing them. And he's here. He's hearing these things and he's realizing that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Wherever you are this morning, if you are coming to see Jesus for the, for the first time, you need to understand that if Jesus is the Son of God, it changes everything. If Jesus is the Son of God, you must bow to him as Lord. You must give up all other ambitions and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And some of you did that a long time ago. Some of you have been following Jesus for, for a long time, but you need to see that for Paul, the immediate change was not the only change. That immediate change was also a progressive change. Paul increased, and we must do. We must continue to meditate. We must continue to worship. We must continue to set our eyes on Jesus. Because we have not arrived yet. There's still room to grow. And we need to increase, even as Paul increased. And whether you're just at the beginning of the journey or whether you're somewhere along the way, you need to be prepared to endure. Because following Jesus is going to be hard. It is going to be costly. But it is the way of life. It is the only way of life. And it is the way that you are called to. And the beauty of the gospel is this. That if you will call upon him this morning, that you will call him Lord, that he will be with you. And he will keep you by his power in faith until the end. And because he will. Because he grabbed hold of Paul and never let go. Because he will do the same for any who call upon his name. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the calling you placed upon Paul's life. We thank you that you place the same calling upon us here this morning. And you give us the grace to respond, Father, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. May we continue to set our eyes on Jesus. May we continue to see him as the Son of God. And may we continue to grow in him until the end when you bring us into glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.